0: This is Swampside Chats, the podcast where communists shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This time, we're reading the first half of Erica Banner's 1995 treatise, Really Existing Nationalisms, a Post-Communist View from Marx and Engels. To help us through this classic defense, we've brought on Nick, a listener from the United Kingdom. Yeah. We uh, we, we just had to do a little... Google searching to confirm that the Democratic National Convention did, in fact, put Elizabeth Warren on a panel speaking to the Native American caucus. And as part of the sort of, I don't know, Native American like issues like live stream that they had. Now, it also featured Cory Booker and other, you know, obviously like non-Native Democrat politicians. But none of those people pretended to be Cherokee.
1: Bernie actually during the primaries did get like a surprising amount of like native support. There were groups of people like doing their chants at his rallies. And I think I saw him in, I think I saw him like talking to some guy in like one of the headdresses, you know, the ceremonial headdresses and looking very solemn. Mm -hmm. It it was one of the more like heartening things about his campaign actually.
0: When he did uh, his stump speeches in Arizona and the southwestern border states. He like changed the game up to actually like address indigenous issues out here, which is, you know, not something a lot of mainstream democratic politicians do at all. So that's pretty remarkable. We were sort of talking about the uh, game theory of identity politics and LARP, how that works and how it's sort of amazing that that kind of thing doesn't happen more. Then we started thinking about, how those structural incentives end up actually running up against the real racist structures to the point where the Democratic Party just doesn't actually have prominent Native American representatives in it,
1: period. form of structural oppression experienced by American Indians is such that it's much harder to place integration or have, you know, you could say like Indian faces in high places as being the overall worthwhile goal of the civil rights or political struggle that they engage in, precisely because they've never been meaningfully integrated into American society the way that even blacks have, right? Like the traditional, the sort of bourgeois and middle management approach to civil rights doesn't really square with the American Indian the same way it does with other groups.
0: In the book, Custer Died for Your Sins, a sort of seminal text in Native American Studies, Vine Deloria Jr. contrasts the African-American and Native American experience is basically exclusion versus forced inclusion. The most obvious example of this is the boarding schools, which are, you know, by UN definition, sort of like a form of cultural genocide, whitewashing. Indigenous people were taken from their families and socialized to be white in these schools. Between like the reservations where people are isolated and that kind of cultural erasure, The record is beyond grim and like the prospects of inclusion, it's a mind-mendingly cynicism inspiring payoff matrix, like however you slice it. Do you get included in a way that makes the way that these institutions deal with Black America look culturally preservative? Or do you just stay completely locked out to the point where there's like a bureau of exclusion that's supposed to be autonomy, but it's really really just the worst off population in the whole country? Like, statistically. Yeah. It's a sort of prelude to our discussion today about a really fascinating book about nationalism. We read Really Existing Nationalisms by Erica Benner. This was published in 1995. And in order to give this book, this really fabulous book, the chewing on that it deserves, we're welcoming a guest onto the show. Hey, Nick, what's up? Thanks for coming to
2: Swampside. Thanks for having me on. If I knew it was so easy to get into a podcast it's just to say, hey, you're going to talk about this book. I want to talk about it too. I would have gone on loads <laughs> years ago. But, <laughs> so it goes.
1: This is part of my like, semi-abortive experiment to just start having random people on. Without really consulting anybody else or thinking about how we would integrate that into a workflow in <laughs> any meaningful way. So, but thanks for coming on. This has been pleasant so far. Um, one little quick thing: if you're like typing or something, if there's a lot of noise in the background, try and hit the mute button if you're not talking or whatever. We'll do. Yeah, that'll that'll yeah. help a little bit. Uh, keep the recording clean. Jake, you can always uh, mute
2: manually. But
1: yes, yeah. I could do that too. I just want to send like a bad message, like "shut up, <laughs>
2: <laughs> cut his mic, cut yeah. his mic
0: right now." Yeah, I got it.
2: I go on, like, write a medium article. I was cancelled by Swampside
0: Chats live on air. Anyway, um, this book was published right after the fall of so-called actually existing socialism. National conflicts that had basically been suppressed by the legacy of a big mustache or sort of emboldened and then suppressed and then something Mm -hmm. and then something else. And then it's kind of hard to follow by a big mustache came roaring back on to the international stage and also in a weird depressing nihilistic time in Marxist theory where people have been trying to make sense of the world for a hundred years and went, Oh, that was wrong. Ah, we were wrong. We were wrong about this. We were wrong about that. We were wrong about this. And I know this primarily through the lens of the analytical Marxists, the guy who wrote the book defending historical materialism, at least the sort of structuralist interpretation that was elaborated by the theorist Louis Althusser and was common for Marxist-Leninists. Even his like most refined version of it, this is uh, G.A. Cohen, saying that he's essentially become like agnostic about this. And one of the big reasons is that this theory doesn't seem to grapple with identity, without which you can't barely conceive of a human being. There's also the book Making Sense of Marx by John Elster, which is a quite a conservative book, honestly, and has a similarly skewering look at Marx and Engels' views on national identity and uh, national sentiment. Conflates them with some of Marx and Engels' ideological enemies, and says, "Yeah, we could basically throw all this out. This is all garbage. They didn't understand this shit at all." So, what Erica Benner is trying to do is something in. The spirit, in my view, of the early G.A. Cohen, when she's looking at Marx and Engels' texts for a theory that sort of emerges throughout their body of texts, like what Marx and Engels' views actually were on this subject, and seeing if those are defensible, abstracted from the sort of Cold War context, and even from the sort of like Hegelian versus Althusserian, like structuralist. Kind of critical theory horseshit, like context. Mm -hmm. Do Marx and Engels' views on this say anything to us now? This is the best form of defensism: is just trying to figure out. Did Marx and Engels say something worth paying attention to? Because I often find that whatever the context is, they usually have something pretty interesting to say. This is a book I think I've needed to read for a long time, because I struggle a lot with the idea of. (laughs) what to do with the nation mm-hmm. in terms of political discourse and how it seems to be hard to get around, especially when dealing with national oppression. But looking at the history of the you know, 19th, 20th century workers movement as being sort of locked in to the nation and the way that that lock into the nation locks you into the national state, the way that locking you into the national state Locks you into a sort of electoralist logic that leads to a defeat. So, this I think provides a springboard for some really fresh thinking and has interesting things to say, not only to that theoretical moment, but to that like mid 90s, like cultural optimism about, wow, you know, the world is flat. Everything's just coming together.
1: Yeah. McDonald's on every corner.
0: Right. Yeah. That was clearly falling apart by the mid 90s.
1: Yeah. What this book does really well is situates Marx and Engels' political thinking and its development in its time and place. And it shows how their views were not static. They did not emerge fully formed out of Marx's head like fucking Jupiter's kid or whatever. Like They were written in response to developing systems, both capitalism, which was still being shaped, and perhaps to an even greater degree, I'd say even certainly to a greater degree, nationalism, like what the nation is. This book even starts out by pointing out that in German, there were two different words for nation that both meant different things, right? And that what you see in Europe at the time is even just the development of the conceptualization of what a nation is, how it could be created in Germany and other countries, and what that creation would even mean. And that's very different from this point where the form seems to have more crystallized and there seems to be this kind of much more fixed idea of what the nation is so much so that it's impossible almost for most to conceptualize a world without nations. It's so normalized and so fixed into the consciousness of what people think things are that they just assume that every state form extended around a certain territory is in a meaningful sense a nation. And that's always existed. Right. But at the time that they were writing, the projects of nationalism and what they meant, it was very much up in the air. And their shifting views on that can be seen as they respond to its effects, not only on class struggle, but on capitalism itself. What were your broader impressions on this book, Nick?
2: So a lot of what my broader impressions were, you guys have already said. I really enjoyed the historical context it gave to their positions. I broke it down to both a practical like, what does this actually mean practically we need to do politically, but also a moral perspective on it? Or like people do have a need or like there's some autonomy to express themselves to fight for some kind of popular vision of the nation, but at the same time, like looking at what the limits of that were in different situations without abandoning the idea at all that, you know what, if people are being oppressed by another country or another state, yeah, they probably should fight back against it, but that doesn't mean it's going to go anywhere that's super good, but that doesn't mean you should dismiss them for fighting in the first place. I also found it interesting how a lot of the point discussion around the different words for nation, like separating the concept of nation, the fatherland, breaking down, mirrored other things I've encountered elsewhere in post Marxist tradition. So, for instance, in like the Kurdish freedom movement, or more specifically, the Appleist section of it, which often like their concept of like the democratic nation versus their state nation or the hegemonic nation and how those two things play into each other and their intention with each other. And like, as often when I go back and read Marx and then read some of the stuff from that, I find, OK, so it's actually going back to things close to what Marx originally said, then a rejection of it and more of a rejection of the stuff that was exported under the big moustaches, as Ezra would say. <laughs>
0: There's like a tripartite distinction that Benner starts out with, right? Mm -hmm. The one that really gets a lot of discussion is uh, nationality, this like Hegelian attempt to talk about the nation in terms of the state, essentially. And the way that Marx weaponizes this against Hegel is to essentially say that the sort of in-group, out-group stuff that Hegel is talking about for identity formation This is actually a sort of weapon of the ruling classes. It's not epiphenomenal. That is to say, it's not something that's completely downstream of economics and class conflict. But Marx acknowledges that this kind of status nationalism is, you know, a problem. That's not really what Marx in general wants to embolden. The other term that he will use is um, Volkssovereignität. See, it's, I don't know, it's, I didn't say that right. Point is, this other German phrase, which is something like sovereign people, sovereign folk, is an attempt, which sounds terrifying in English, actually, but this is the reason. It's an attempt to divorce the idea of a people, of a nation, from a sort of purely ethnic read. So Marx and Hegel kind of had, A shared goal in trying to get beyond a purely ethnic read of nation. But while Hegel was going towards a statist read of nationality, Marx wanted this more popular, democratic idea of the nation. That's a lot of the time what Marx was trying to deal with. This is something that I associate mostly with uh, Jean Jacques Rousseau. I am a little, I guess, uncomfortable with the way that Marx is is using this. But I think it's sort of because that as the author says, you know, like at this time there was no theory of how all these things are all the same thing. Actually, there was no simple word to describe just nationalism that summed all this stuff up neatly because it wasn't obvious that they were parts of the same concept. Let's say.
1: Yeah. There's a section. Just pull this real quick. But Marx argued that in attempting to justify the separation of state from society as a condition needed for the flourishing of both private and public life, Hegel was forced to mediate the gap with the very institutions, uh, the estates, bureaucracy, and monarchy, that already tended, on Marx's view, to reinforce the power of sectional interests over universality. Far from transcending these particularisms in a higher unity, Hegel's rational state merely reflected and sanctioned existing social divisions. Yeah, so he's basically saying that the unity formed by the state is actually a false unity. And there are these deeper underlying antagonisms that are frozen in in place in a way by the state so that the dominant actors can maintain their position and that these things never really fully resolve themselves. What was the third one?
0: Ethnic status and popular democratic. Oh, yeah. yeah, Okay. Yeah. The ethnic and the popular democratic are often phrased in terms of bulk, which is just hard to hear. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean. These were very much live questions in Germany at the time, which was still broken up into all these like separate little fiefdoms and so forth. And it was a very conscious effort at nation building in a way that maybe didn't exist in other areas. And so, yeah, those were kind of the three main lines around which people argued that the nation should be decided. You know, like many said, you know, Germany should basically be wherever German is spoken. Whereas others, it was based more on the power of a particular state. It was a live political question. You can see how. It would foster this particular culture that would produce Marx and Engels. Yeah, like he really goes after basically like Hegel's conservatism, and as has often been said, kind of like turns it on its head. Whereas like Hegel sees the state as the source of this higher unity, Marx sees it as an impediment, and like he sees it as an instrument of pure class domination, where you can see from there the germ of his idea of, you know, like the dictatorship of the proletariat as being like an essential step towards overcoming these the conditions that produce this
0: crucially like the author brackets the critique of the philosophy of right and on the jewish question into a sort of pre-communist marx so there's like a there's a step that isn't taken there like marx sees the way that this is a false universal because here his objective critique is state more so than class whereas hegel wants to get to this like weird universalized version of particularity in the state, right? Because Hegel's vision of the world might end at some future distant point with, you know, one big state, like Alex Jones, one world government baby. But throughout his work, what he's really thinking of are these kind of national essences that are best universalized and crystallized in these state forms, Which can like dissolve the petty egoisms of tribal competing views of nation or whatever. There's something about the way that the state does this that gets beyond that. But Marx turns this on his head by basically saying that, no, what you're actually doing is introducing this like realm of egoism in its most like contemptuous form. And in order to get beyond that false abstract universal sort of like egoism or whatever. You have to look at people in their actual situations, their concrete interests, and if you wanted unity, you would have to find more or less strategic compromises between them in order to like, actually foster that unity on a real basis. He does this for authoritarian states in the critique of the philosophy of right, and then on the Jewish question, attacks right as such- and it's more, you know, democratic, bourgeois form. Like, and I appreciate that the author is starting with Hegel and does a better job at summarizing Hegel's political thought than most people. Um, and because without that, you can't really see the inversion that Marx is doing.
2: I think it's interesting where it's like teasing out more the very specifics of how Marx uses different terms in the Communist Manifesto and how that maybe marks some of the changes in how he conceptualizes the nation and the... Uh, workers' relationship to it, although still focusing on you need to start fighting somewhere
1: first. Does it already get into this in that section? I forget. Because I know overall, like, in this book, there is this sense, especially in early Marx and Engels, that the working class has to settle accounts within its particular national context before finding unity at, like, a higher level. At least that's how they seem to conceptualize it uh, prior to and around 1848.
0: The overall thing here is that this is against a sort of structuralist read. This is common sense to us, right? But at the time, there was a structuralist consensus that what the author is calling the pre-communist writings of, of Marx are essentially like not Marx. Marx hadn't made his, you know, incredible epistemological break yet. And this has nothing to do with everything that comes later. So we can just toss this aside because it doesn't give us any meaningful read of what comes later, which is just patently yeah. false. You can see mm-hmm. the Hegelian like imprint all throughout Marx's works including you know the stuff that the structuralists like it's just not true so like the author is doing this to just reconnect those bits in Marx's over you know like that had been so thoroughly severed by learned scholars
1: should we talk about the next section yeah yeah so early on in chapter 2 they talk about the problem of war and that what it poses for both historical materialism, any account, trying to get to this point where you can imagine this wider community based on humanity as like a global totality, right? But there's this problem of war that even extends beyond history. You could say there's even like intertribal warfare during what you might call primitive communism. What this points to is that on some level, historical materialism as such can really only apply to class society because you basically get to a point where societies become... Based around not just appropriating what is immediately in nature, but on work itself, right? Particularly in the form of agriculture. And that particular mode of producing creates a kind of scarcity that might not exist simply through like hunter and gathering. I mean, obviously, hunter gatherers like use up resources and then have to shift to different areas in a more like cyclical way. But when you're fixed in a particular location, that presupposes fighting over territory. Which produces this stratified division of labor, i.e., a warrior class who specializes in either appropriating or preventing the appropriation of labor in a particular area. The reason I guess I bring all this up is that it's very easy to assume that nationalism is a sort of natural expression of a very basic human narcissism of the imaginary, where it's the in group, out group. I'm over here, you're over there, or we're over here and you people are over there. Ergo, there has to be some sort of antagonism in order to justify said split and separation. And people are always going to group into these formations that will inevitably break out into war with each other, whether it's intertribal warfare or whether it's warfare between nations or states or whatever. What Marx and Engels try and point to is a way out of this, which is to say you end the kind of material scarcity that produces like these very real meaningful antagonisms. And let me pull up the preconditions they had here.
0: Uh, yeah. Uh, page 63. I have the passage here. Yeah. The key to this problem lies in the fundamental differences between primitive communal society and full communism as Marx and Engels conceived these epochs. Marx saw the conflict engendering nature of territoriality and communal plurality in natural communities as the effect of three interrelated factors prevailing in those communities, but largely eliminated in the capitalist era. One, conditions of scarcity. Two, technological and organizational limitations within the productive process. And three, consequent insecurity concerning the ability of societies to reproduce their basic material conditions of existence. So the aim of all communities is survival, essentially. So in a way, it's like the Hobbesian account is very reductive, but not completely false. It's insufficient, right? You have to understand the conditions for which life can be nasty, brutish, and short. And, you know, beyond the bits that Hobbes doesn't really get about, like, collective belonging or whatever, there's an ugly logic to tribalism as the proto-nationalism, which ignores, I guess, really, that tribes are, like smooshed and smothered and fictionalized into states. (laughs) Like if you actually look at the relationships between tribes and state building, something uh Franz
1: Fanon was pretty insightful about is that, you know, it's not like one-to-one. So one thing about nationalism, it did pose historically this stumbling block for the working class at the focal point of the classical era of working class struggle in the early 20th century. And the subsequent trap that communist party led nation states found themselves in in these developmental processes really seems to solidify the idea that the nation is this natural kind of eddy that you'll end up in no matter what you do due to some maybe deeper aspect in human species being right but i think we can particularize it in a certain way if we think about it like this like the united states is a nation right that ostensibly has common national identity, but the amount of stuff that's contained within it and the amount of space that it's spread over is massive. Whereas you have all these other places that are, you know, like much smaller. Like if you can extend a national identity out to as wide areas and as heterogeneous a population as you can in America or in other places, like why couldn't you just do that with the entire planet? Some would say you need some sort of like in-group out-group distinction, but I think what Marx conceptualizes it as. Is that you would need things to be based around consciously labor itself and common struggles, both at a universal level and at a particular level. So the particularisms that might exist and emerge would be based on individuals engaged in some kind of cooperative productive activity, right? So we're the group who's working on, I don't know. Some new irrigation system or whatever, and the association that you have with those people through that labor develops, you know, communitarian bonds and affinities that maybe lead you to distinguish yourself from others. But because you're integrated consciously into this wider global productive apparatus, there is like a higher unity of humanity towards which people have this kind of affinity, without their needing to be. You know, like in the end of Watchmen.
2: <laughs> that convinces everybody Spoiler. to come together. Jake, I still haven't watched that movie. How dare you spoil it for me? This is outrageous.
1: Yeah, <laughs> my bad. Okay.
0: I mean, that is the literary thing that comes to mind as well. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but I wanted to say, at the same time, you get the sense of the United States from sports culture here. One way that this massive, spatial, and differentiated like, nation can be held together is by channeling some of that narcissism of the imaginary into identification with localized sports teams of which the distinction between them is fundamentally meaningless, right? It's all this pool of like professional players who are just working where they can get paid and maybe get a ring. Right. But one thing that was interesting, I was talking to Nick before the show about this, like apparently in England, football clubs and politics are much more directly integrated in a way that has maybe some actual political stakes. And not just you know mm-hmm. you get into an argument with a Patriots fan, a Buffalo Wild Wing, you both get kicked out. <laughs>
2: yeah. Oh yeah, throughout Europe. Yeah, in the UK, most cities that have more than one major football team, which most big cities do. I mean, soccer, but I'm going to keep saying football because it's my language. It's, my language.
0: <laughs> it's because you yeah. kick the ball with your foot in it. Anyway, yeah. continue. Yeah, <laughs> uh,
2: it's less of a thing now, but that went to a really deep level. Like for instance, Chelsea, like one of the big teams in London. Historically, they're like main group of like football hooligans associated with them, and like the big non-hooligan fan associations were associated and had huge overlap with the neo-Nazi group like Combat 18, which among other things back in the day, I think it was the 80s, burnt down the house of the editor of the Morning Star, like the main socialist newspaper in the UK. It's not always as dramatic as that, but most teams in the UK will have some association one way or the other. And even today, like one of the biggest Oh, right beat movements well, it's collapsed quite a lot the last year or so is the fla the football lads alliance which split into the dfla the democratic football lads alliance so it happens all the way like splits it's not just on the left but you also have like teams that are very much strongly associated with left and the socialist politics in some form and sometimes that's like mediated through and also a kind of nationalist politics for instance celtic in glasgow which is despite not being an island to the team of Irish Republicanism, the IRA to a degree, and also like really strongly associated with a general anti imperialist politics. And you have clubs like St. Pauli in Germany. is like really strongly associated with anti-fascism. And even like, I'll go into a random pub or bar in England, I'll see like a St. Pauli anti-fascist sticker, because it's even become a thing that people involved in anti-fascist politics in the UK have adopted St. Pauli as a signifier.
1: Yeah, that's interesting because it seems like the exact opposite of what we have here, where, yeah, like I said, all the teams are basically these interchangeable owned franchises that are completely kind of divorced from local conditions. And yet any intrusion of politics into like the space of sports is greeted as this, <laughs> you know, like horrible violation. You know, it's, right. it's like it's been defiled, even though there is this kind of like broad nationalism that is very explicitly pushed through the culture around these things. I think it's probably a mix of things because there does seem to be more active you'd say like left or local politics on the ground in the UK than in the United States, probably in part due to just the way the U S was developed where, you know, like half the country was expanded during the automobile era in like the fifties. So, you know, you don't really have like older developed community areas. It's all just like pioneer settled.
2: Well, it's related to what you just said. Like, football teams used to be very embedded in their communities. They'd often be community owned to some degree. They'd recruit from like the local working class neighborhood or their teams, which like football teams are less politicized now than they used to be. And that has coincided, among other things, with them becoming more and more like a corporate affair, more and more of an investment vehicle for people. But, yeah.
1: Yeah. Like, here it was always about commerce, pretty much 100% from the jump, except for maybe like baseball. But again, that traces back to the 19th century. But I just thought it was interesting because also in the United States, there seems to be this broader decaying of civil society. Like there's a great documentary that was about this hollowed out industrial town where literally the only civic institution they have is like the local high school football team. It's called mm-hmm. go tigers. Like there's all this pressure on these like kids to perform well because it's the only thing the community has left. And so I feel like the aggressive, like apolitical quality of American sports is precisely because it serves that function on a national level. And it's also part of the like, sort of mass hysteria we're seeing right now is due to the lack of the the communal sports experience as a thing to give a sense of commonality to American public life right now
0: and the sort of like interjection of players having solidarity with the communities that they're from (laughs) like as opposed to just you shutting up and the national anthem playing and nope 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 no politics here in the United States the leftist position on sports is you hate sports except you retweet. Copernican and then more recently you retweet king james that's pretty much it it is always interesting to hear how this gets channeled uh, in europe there's every so often an entertaining headline about a soccer player imitating you know mussolini hanging on a hook or something that
1: shit rolls um,
2: oh, yeah. i always forget his name but the guy who did a flying kick onto a guy in the stands doing the hitler salute
1: Yeah, I think my favorite one of those was a video. I don't know if it was. Maybe this is in Latin America. I forget. Some guy, some jackass runs onto the field. And then the guards or the cops or whoever run out. And they get on him. And they kind of start fucking him up with a nightstick, right? And you're like, oh, like, that's just too much, right? But then some dude runs out and does a flying kick on the cops. (laughs) And and you're like, oh, shit, right? And then, like, the cops get up with this look like, are you really going to fucking do this? Are you insane? And then they turn around and like people are getting out of the stands and coming onto the field in mass. And then they're fucking up the cops. <laughs> wow. It's a, yeah, it's a wild video. That is beautiful. But anyway, I guess I have to kind of bred that up because I do think that part of the, the roadblock that people can't get around this idea of getting beyond nation is precisely, you could call it tribalism. You could call it like this certain aspect of like the human lizard brain left over from you know, previous epochs or whatever that has to manifest itself somewhere and i think in contemporary spectacular alienated like society yeah the spectacle of sports is one of the primary like repositories for that impulse but in the alienated communist society it would be through total identification with the productive activity you were engaged in both publicly i guess you know, as the broader service to society, but also the particular pursuits you were using to develop yourself as an individual, right? And that's the impression I got from Marx talking about, like, particularisms being based around common projects and struggles.
0: Marx's comments about, you know, how these conditions can give way to wars of colonization and conquest, it's not too far apart from, like, contemporary, like, Darwinian reads of humanity. And as we were talking on the Discord earlier, like, far from being this, like, Marx versus Darwin kind of thing that you sometimes hear on BreadTube or whatever, you know? Marx was a great admirer of Darwin. Um, He corresponded with him. He was super psyched when the origin of the species came out to, you know, drop it on the heads of some Christians. Um, Mm -hmm. Like, he considered dedicating Capital Volume 1 to Darwin. And when Marx died, Engels compared him to Darwin at his graveside.
1: Darwin read Capital too. I think he sent him a copy and he was like, Yeah, I don't understand half of this, but sounds good, dude. <laughs>
0: yeah, no, no, that's right. about the extent of their correspondence. But they did correspond and it's super neat. So there.
2: Um. And <laughs> I have to say, like, studying when I did my first degree in biology, like studying modern evolutionary biology, helped me see some of the flaws in the overly mechanistic or deterministic understanding, misunderstanding of historical materialism, and get to a better understanding of it. As much yes. as I am quite wary of people trying to think use things from biology as a political metaphor too much, I do think there was something useful there.
0: I think that's exactly the angle that you need for historical materialism to actually work. Because frankly, the one thing about this and the one time that I've seen the word structuralist in a way that I was like, "Oh shit, okay, I kind of agree," is in the troubling of primitive communism. The ideas of peoples without history. And in particular, my feminist gripe is the idea that, well, you know, you have these nice societies with zero division of labor. Then all of a sudden you get division of labor and eh, wrong. <laughs> like there's always division of labor in human societies There's division of reproductive labor. Anyway, to get to an honest view of historical materialism that can deal with all this stuff, I think you have to engage with evolutionary biology. And it's like kind of a sad artifact of the Cold War and the diamat religion versus critical Western Marxist split, you know, the immortal science of everything versus, nope, just talking about history. Actually, I don't have any ideas. I'm just throwing tomatoes here, like kind of use of Marxism. Historical materialism doesn't work without thinking about what kind of creature human beings are, without thinking about human nature, about re-engaging with those questions, because Marx certainly had a theory of human nature, Marx certainly believed in that shit. Marx didn't think that we were like a blank slate kind of like ready to be imprinted upon in any like virtuous pattern that we desire. Like that is (laughs) very, very Mm anti-Marxian.
2: And at the end of the day, people have material, concrete material needs and their nature is going to be determined by how they try and fulfill those needs and what options they have available to them. Like there's no abstract humanity sans those needs.
0: Unfortunately, the word materialism becomes a sort of buzzword in some like Maoist writings and some of the like materialist feminists. They're sort of clearest about this with like, oh, no, no, materialist just means like strategic pragmatic. We're not actually talking about like reality. We don't believe in that shit. Like <laughs> <laughs> we're not, we don't mean biology. That's that's ideology. What are you talking about? Like and so like looking at Marx's actual views. You know, other than my qualifications with regards to, you know, peoples without history, which uh, the Slavs are apparently a part of, according to Angles, which I kind of love as someone well, that's like three quarters people without history here.
2: I just think of the wonderful opportunity that gives you to move through history without anyone noticing you, though.
0: And I got a quarter, uh, co- you know, rootless cosmopolitan in there. So, I mean, I'm basically like a transcendent being.
2: Yeah, you're totally cut off from the time stream at this point, Esri. So probably try and fix that. <laughs> <laughs> I did enjoy Engels flip flopping backwards and forwards whether Poland had history or not, depending on how much he liked the direction the national struggle was going there. <laughs> oh yeah. It's like, yes, these guys they're right about a lot of stuff. They also were has much of a tendency to get pissed off at how things were going and say ridiculous <laughs> fucking things as anyone else.
0: Yeah, uh my god, that chapter's really really pretty fun. Um I mean, it's frankly sort of disturbing. Overlaps in a way with that people's without history, although in in quite a different way than depriving a tribe like the Alone that lives in something like so-called natural abundance. If you could defend Marx and Engels on any point, you know, it's not just that they're depriving people of history because, you know, they're from the American continent and they have like a reddish tint to their skin or something. No, no, no. They also look in the European continent and they're like, nope, Slavs don't have a history either. Like <laughs> whatever their like, implicit biases, they're like explicit biases seem to have some consistency. Are
1: we talking about the history list people stuff with Engels?
0: Uh Yeah, yeah. It's kind of jumping the gun a little bit, but it, it does tie into the flaws in historical materialism and essentially saying that people that aren't developing a division of labor that isn't just, you know, like uh, men and women, because I mean, who gives a shit about that? Am I right? (laughs) Um, Those people don't have history. You can't tell a historical materialist story about them. You can't do historical materialist science on them. The only good defense that the author gives of that is that historical materialism is a theory of social change. And Marx and Engels are assuming that without the development of that internal division of labor, besides reproductive labor, because who cares about that, that you don't have social change. And that's like maybe the most eloquent defense that you can give of Marx and Engels. Again, this book is very defensive, Marx and Engels, uh, and it does a great job of explicating their views. Even where I disagree with Marx and Engels' views, I appreciate the author's attention to detail and charity towards them, because you know that at this point in time, there are a lot of people... Pouring more dirt on the graves.
1: Yeah, knives are out. So, but if, yeah, if historic materialism is a theory of change, what changes would there have been in the realm of like reproduction, like in Eastern Europe at the time?
0: Eastern Europe, I don't know, but like there's exogenous changes, there's like geographic changes. You know, maybe there's like a new wildlife or something. Maybe the tribe moves. You know, why um, don't non sedentary peoples have history? It's just clearly like a colonialist Hegelian bias that historical materialism doesn't need. I don't think it needs it in order to be a good theory. In fact, in order to actually be a theory of all of the human species, it can't only focus on sedentary peoples because that's a very small amount of human history.
1: I mean, I guess it depends like if they were able to develop technologically and consistently transmit knowledge in a developmental way between generations, right? Like, To a certain extent, you would need writing in order to do that, right? I was reading this manga, right? (laughs) Oh, AJ. Yeah. Called Dr. Stone. And it takes place in like a post apocalyptic world where suddenly in a flash everyone turns to stone. But 3,000 years later, a kid who's kind of like a genius wakes up and decides to like speedrun human technological development, right? So he gets <laughs> into this tribal war with this other kid who wakes up from the time who was like a boxer and he's basically an anarcho primitivist. And he decides like, we can't bring back the old people. We can't bring back the prison. Like, we just got to keep most people in stone and we're just going to rebuild like a tribal society. We're not going to go through like the brutality of human history, right? So they get into this fight because of this. And there's a, like a freeze frame kind of thing. Well, I mean, they're all freeze frames because it's a comic book, but I'm sure when it was adapted to an anime, it was a freeze frame where they're kind of describing what they stand for. And he basically stands for like martial strength. And the science kid says that he stands for science, which is the fruits and accumulation of human labor through history, right? And so I can see why if tribal societies weren't in a substantial sense or accumulating basically their labor in such a way so as to develop technologically and intellectually the way that you could with writing and with the way that like civilization had been transmitted through history through different regions in this kind of historical development that, May not have been localized to one place, but might have jumped between different centers of civilization since the beginning of agriculture. I could see why you might describe a people as historyless. That isn't in a way that's necessarily bigoted. It's just like a an observation. What Engels', mm-hmm. Engel's judgment here was probably but, a little bit bigoted, but some of it was but, also a hang, hangover of his like Hegelianism. But uh, I kind of object to
0: even saying that you know people without writing have no technological development or cultural development or passing things down. You could do a lot with oral tradition. There are peoples that like have you know thousands and thousands of years of history, including technological developments,
1: including cultural developments, including
2: records of huge geological change like thousands of years ago. Yeah,
1: but you need to have like a stratified, like conscious record that you can go through and go, okay, there's this point, this point, this point, this point, as opposed to like the wisdom being accumulated in an eternal present through oral traditions and what they have at the moment that are I... apprehended. I don't know.
2: I think it's definitely true that written language creates new possibility for accessing knowledge, for examining your developments and developing them further. I do think there is a degree to which you're underestimating what can be done with an oral tradition.
0: Yeah, us sitting here on Swampside Chats, the podcast where communists shoot the shit uh, on a bunch of books. You know, we can't access it. You know, if it's oral tradition, we're not watching them on YouTube. So I know what you mean, but there are those forms of development. If historical materialism is about the human species and not just about a very small subsection of the human species, then it should include,
1: you know, the whole human species. Mm -hmm. Well, in some ways, I think historical materialism is in a way almost backward looking from like a future imagined standpoint. You know what I mean? Like it's almost as if you're trying to look back at things from like a communist standpoint, Mm -hmm. because they say like Mm -hmm. when you overcome. The basis of class society history then begins. So it's like historical materialism is almost understanding the prelude to actual history, which begins when mankind consciously takes into its grasp the materials for its own self-development and the development mm-hmm. of its relationship to nature and the universe.
0: Right, um, and cracks yeah. warp theory and co- makes contact with the Vulcans and forms a yeah. federation. No, no, yeah, yeah,
2: there's a thing I often think when I'm being a bit more bong ripple big brain or whatever that like part of the communist project is to make history look teleological it's like it's not but if yeah. we do things right no one will be able to tell the difference between if it actually was
0: <laughs> i don't want to get too bogged down in these critiques of historical materialism but i'm just sort of pointing out like in this book the critical edge is mostly salved by like but hey everyone's pissing all over Marx and angles i'm not here to do that Um, I'm just trying to explicate their views and show them in their best light and draw out what is interesting here. So, I mean, I could appreciate the author's goals. It's just, I don't know when I'm seeing things written out this clearly and specifically in what I think is the heart of the book, right? How much of human nature is hard coded? How much of it is, you know, historical, cultural, pliable. And, you know, that's like the deep question of historical materialism, that's the deep question of communism, of the elimination of class, of Marxism in general.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, the reason why that I accept some forms of Marxism that basically don't have a classless society as a goal. And I think I still think of them as forms of Marxism, because a lot of these people just think it's impossible. And they have their reasons for doing so. And throughout most of our lives, most rational adults thought that way, which is painful,
1: honestly. Two things. Yeah, I can just picture Erica Banner looking at people in the 90s be that meme where it's like Marx and Engels and they scowl, fuck off. I don't believe in meat off nonsense. They, they see <laughs> The World is Flat by Thomas Friedman. Oh, so true. Like some kind of Evo psych thing
0: about yeah. like lesbians are just trying to attract men by living on an all-women commune for 40 years. <laughs> so true.
1: <laughs> and this was not a narrative piece, but one narrative that runs through this book as she observes the intellectual progression of Marx and Engels and their thinking about the nation-state, is, especially in the later sections, you get to this sense of disappointment at the intractability of it and at the fact that the problem seems to be getting worse as the nation-state itself solidifies and its function within capitalist society starts to crystallize. Uh, Where are we formally at in our journey through this? Are we on chapter three? I don't.
0: Um, we're kind of transitioning from chapter two to three here. The opening paragraph here is a, a salvo against John Elster in making sense of Marx, where he basically is like, yeah, we don't have to fucking listen to Marx and Engels about nationalism. You want some insights in political theory? Don't look at Marx and Engels as, uh, views on nationalism. Just fuck that. I want to read the opening paragraph. I like have it in purple. Purple is my color for when something is just dank and I like it. <laughs> um, By declining to single out nationalism as the subject matter for a distinct theory, Marx and Engels left ample room for doubt about the theoretical status of their writings on specific national movements. The Communist Manifesto provides their most comprehensive analysis of the changing role of nation-states within the world market and their most concise formulation of an international strategy for the proletariat. Most of their writings on national issues, however, appear in a variety of other genres in speeches, journalism, and political correspondence. Some of these writings are highly polemical, while others offer on-the-ground reportage from a radical perspective. In either case, the style is often less rigorous than that employed in their theoretical works, while the content is more overtly political. The author's attention is focused on the volatile ephemera of contemporary affairs, only occasionally shifting back towards wider historical developments and economic processes. This emphasis has induced some commentators To draw a sharp line between Marx and Engels as self-styled scientific theorists of society on the one hand, and Marx and Engels on the pragmatic observers of political events on the other. Their overwhelmingly journalistic discussions on national issues may convey the impression that the authors were not at all concerned to explain the appeal and development of national movements in terms consistent with their general theory, but that they merely took an opportunistic stance towards such conflicts, hoping to channel them into their revolutionary strategy. No, let's see. It would be implausible to account for their apparently untheoretical treatment of national issues by suggesting that Marx and Engels regarded all politics, including nationalist politics, as mere superstructural emanations, as though they did not think that such epiphenomena required further explanation once their economic foundations had been analyzed. Scrolling down, the proposition that Marx and Engels regarded all superstructural phenomena unworthy of their theoretical attention cannot, moreover, be sustained in view of the numerous works in which they offered rigorous analyses of political, legal, and cultural issues if Marx and Engels did not develop fully-fledged general theories of law, politics, and nationalism. This does not mean they saw no need to explain why these phenomena assume different forms and take on different historical significance within class struggle and modes of production described in their socio-economic theory. So, just pushing back on this. The idea that these things have no connection That, you know, there's pragmatic writings and there's like, you know, German butthole wearing a lab coat kind of thing. These things have an interaction. Marx and Engels kind of do have, like, maybe not like a full-fledged theory of all these things. It was maybe like, I don't know, one of those things in the big list of everything that Marx wanted to write about before getting stuck on capital. But Erica Bender does lay out here elements of a Marxian theory of nationality. That stuff is on page 96. One. Political or cultural nation cannot be abstracted from its social bases and treated as a wholly independent source of collective interests and aspirations and hence as a stable focus of explanation. Two, nationalism cannot be analyzed then as a phenomenon sui generis with origins and aims that are clearly distinct from those of movements which Marx and Engels linked to the interests of conflicting classes. Not all class movements are nationalist movements. All nationalist movements are driven backwards and forward by class struggles and can be analyzed in terms of the class interests that they aim to promote or obstruct. Three, the international context of nationalist activity should also be examined in relation to class conflicts which arise below the level of states and nations and co- across these units. Four, nationalism's appeal to various groups cannot finally be understood primarily in terms of a primordial national identity or a need for self-definition as against other national groups questions about the distinctive identity of a nation tend to acquire political importance only where other concrete interests are at stake. And these interests were defined in the societies, Marx and Engels observed, largely in class terms. So this is their sort of elements of a theory of nationalism.
1: I think that last statement is really the key one, right? Questions about the distinctive identity of a nation tend to acquire political importance only where other concrete interests are at stake. And those interests are defined in class terms. The problem is, With nationalism, nationality is it is kind of, you could say, alienated or maybe mystified form of looking at these other questions that are really at stake. Right. Maybe that's a little reductive.
0: And that's more of the Marxist structuralist read than the Marxian read. Right. Like there's a bunch of stuff, particularly in Chapter five, where Marx breaks with his like earlier, more stringent criteria for supporting a nationalist movement. Not really breaks with, I shouldn't say that, but like softens because of how important, you know, the national aspects of a class struggle can be.
1: Right. Well, Okay. so in terms of different classes trying to support and identify this like nation building or nationalist project, not to say that it's completely irrational, but in a sense, it would be better if there could be a greater degree of consciousness or even like cynicism about it. Right. Um, If they understood explicitly what they were doing was a class project and that the national thing was only useful in so far as it was useful to advance their class interests. Right. Seems like part of the problem is both kind of getting sucked into the project and concept of the nation, because this this comes back to bite later in a number of ways, but also particularly when you get into a situation of warfare of wanting like your subjectivity or like their class institutions to be allowed to continue to exist are in a sense like blackmailed into supporting like an explicit nationalist project against other nations and the working classes of other nations right
2: to a degree what this book is pushing back against is the idea that these things can be dismissed as purely false consciousness although that is yeah. true i think what it really lays out and lays out marx's understanding is that although the nation as it currently exists is a very modern thing it's not a thing that stretches back into time it doesn't come out of nowhere Communities and populations do have histories as well as having class character, and parts of those histories go into building the modern nation state while simultaneously amputating other parts of that. And so, like, how people understand is connected to how that history unplayed in developing the class character of different communities within a nation as capitalism formed alongside it. And so, anyone's like class struggle is going to be based on their understanding of their class position in a particular nation until they've broken it down to a degree. This comes in one of the later chapters where it like lays out the criteria for supporting them like viability and their position on the struggles in other nations. It also shows the way that class interests can only really be victorious via collaboration with the same class in other nations. But it is like a dialect of that so It's not something that can be overthrown simply so by saying this is nonsense. It has to be in the same way that nations developed there through like the, both the conscious and unconscious action of humans because like, yeah, partly it developed out of just organically the needs of, like, a developing mode of production, but also deliberate steps were made to quash different regional identities that didn't fit into it. In the same way, like, the structure of the nation-state, along with capitalism, takes concrete steps of, like, alliances, thinking about, okay, our interests aren't really served by this, but also will develop organically out of people's struggles about the impositions put on them by the state. So, like, it all jumbles together. And the epiphenomenal thing, like, affects the phenomena in the first place as well.
0: The book probably best states this by saying Marx and Engels don't think of nationalism as a zero-sum game with internationalism, as we tend to. Even us on the left, like, the left, you know, tends to see it that way. You know, they're the left comms that are the internationalists you know, that hate all forms of nationalism, and then there's the tankies that like love national dictators and oh you're an internationalist, actually you're just like a neoliberal. Like, you know, whatever. Marx and Engels have a little more of like a subtle point of view about this. And um, I don't know. Would it be better if the Palestinian working class saw themselves as in a common struggle with the Israeli working class? Like, in some contexts, that's not the thing that really sticks out as being the obvious uh <laughs> as being the The primary contradiction, you know, right? Like it doesn't like obviously suggest itself by the empirical situation. Right. The Um, other way would be true. The other way. Yes. No, it would be way better if the Israeli working class saw themselves as in a common struggle with the Palestinian working class.
2: And I think that comes out really clearly in like chapter four on the criterion one, international reciprocity. It's like, yeah, if you're in an oppressed quote unquote nation, you probably should understand that you do have things in common with the working class in the nation that's oppressing you. They probably need to reach out first, you know, because otherwise, Mm -hmm. why the hell would you think you can trust them?
1: Right. This is probably the best antidote to both people who say stuff like fuck Israeli nationalism and Palestinian nationalism, you know, and people will just like stand any tin pot dictator who nationalized an oil rig somewhere. You know what I mean? Um, (laughs) Yeah.
2: Jake, what you is that oil rig is the foundation upon which the new international will be built, <laughs> yeah, come on, yeah. Yeah. I support the micronation of Sealand land.
1: But- <laughs> as a proper internationalist, I only support Sea World. The, uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um,
2: it's where they're training the dolphin <laughs> vanguard, so it checks out.
1: Yeah, no, as a Posadas internationalist, like I commune with my dolphin <laughs> brethren uh, at yeah. Sea World. Okay, anyway, um. Well, Recently on Star Trek,
0: uh, Cetacean Ops, which is like the dolphin navigation tank on the Enterprise. Yeah, that
2: Star Trek is this in?
0: So, so like, this was like uh, in the show Bible for uh, The Next Generation, but it w- wasn't really like shown. But on the lower decks, they make a reference to it like, as being a real thing. Uh, wait,
1: so, wait, what is it, though? <laughs> what, are you, what are you talking about? There are dolphin
0: officers on the Enterprise, which help
1: navigate... Oh, oh, yeah, okay, so on. Roddenberry was a Posadaist then, right? Like, there's oh, no way.
2: Come, come on. Oh.
1: There's no way he wasn't. Well, I know, it sounds
2: way? more and more like he's trying to write a parody Posada show at this point.
1: Yeah. Like, <laughs> I'm actually 100% convinced that that's real
2: now. Yeah. If that's okay. uh,
0: It's only an oblique reference. Apparently, they're going to show it later. I can't oh, wait they show oh, citation I, Ops.
2: This is going to be so good.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, I uh, feel like they could have been within the next generation, just have a scene with, like, Picard, like, communing with, like, the dolphins <laughs> or whatever, like, in a pool.
2: Would his hand be on the tank or would he be in the tank? He'd be in he the pool, obviously. Okay, good. Um,
1: He just kind of gets out and then, you know, like, someone's, like, briefing him on something that's going on, you know?
0: <laughs> like a good
1: Starfleet diplomat,
0: you know what I mean? Like, he's got to yeah. immerse himself in the culture. Yeah. Um. So, anyway, um, we're a bit far. I wanted to... Zero in on one more feature of chapter three before moving on, which is the difference between substantial and prudential interests. So there's a theory of political action here. Marx, being primarily thought of as a structuralist thinker, kind of makes zero sense when you're looking at his tomes and tomes and tomes of writings on political strategy. So basically, Marx and Engels' theory of political action. Is And I quote from page 102, the concept of class interest cannot be used to assert an abstract set of nationalist aims, which class actors were expected to pursue, regardless of the circumstances in which they had to maneuver. Marx and Engels analyses indicate two levels of any class's interests, which explain patterns of support or opposition to nationalist programs, substantial interests in specific economic and political arrangements and prudential interests. Formed through a process of reciprocal opposition in conflicts with other classes. The first set of interests explains class action by identifying the ends that class actors hope to maximize. The second refers to negative interests and self-preservation, which become paramount when efforts to secure substantial interests are diverted or restrained by the opposition of other classes and their supportive institution. Marx and Engels invoke the concept of prudential interests to explain why class actors may support nationalist programs that do not reflect their maximal interests or refrain from advancing programs that do. And so the author is situating it in the German working class context in 1848. The appeal of particular nationalist ideas and policies is still explained by class interests, but in a negative rather than a substantive way. Support for such nationalism was, in Marx and Engels' view, the alienated and transitory effect of domestic repression. It reflected not a positive attraction to the aims and symbolism of nationalism as such, but a practical inability to secure social interests through any other
1: movement. That's a useful distinction to make in terms of trying to parse this stuff out. Yeah, trying to basically determine what's the rational interest at work here behind, you know, these tendencies.
2: Mm -hmm. I do think it's a really useful tool to understanding different political decisions. One thing that I'd like to bounce off you is I do kind of, from observing different tendencies of like British nationalism or in other countries, I think there's a degree to which if you follow your prudential interests for long enough and they're the only interests that seem open to you, which has been the case, I think the working class in England for the last 20 years and well in all of the UK and probably in a lot of the Western world, you start to perceive what's your prudential interest as your substantive interest Yes, because anything else is just too depressing and spirit breaking.
0: Very much so. I mean the whole like new dealer, And like Labour 45 kind of trajectory we see in the last like century gives us a tragedy of conflating the two.
2: To an even greater degree, I think this also goes to explain how some people like who I would say are Marxists are able to look at something like China or other quote unquote actually existing socialist states and say, yes, it is the dictatorship of the proletariat because maybe those states can advance some prudential interest of the working class. But they're not advancing substantial interests of working class in any way. But at the end of the day, prudential's the only thing people can imagine now. Yeah. That's
1: kind of what's related to the very seemingly grim like foreclosure of, of possibilities. And yeah, I mean, I don't see how you don't like describe this as just a generalized like right word trajectory. I mean, except for maybe like individual like civil liberties and certain like identity mm-hmm. things like that. Obviously, yeah, there has been progress and it continues to like bedevil and drive the right wing crazy and convince them that there's like this great like George Soros led like Antifa conspiracy to end America but the the,
0: the Marxists are the strategic masterminds and we're playing like
1: a 12 dimensional chess anything is that Marxists actually give a shit about (laughs) you know anything in terms of like bread and butter like material working class interests that would actually like ameliorate the living conditions of people and allow them to have some kind of like dignified existence in terms of how they work and live that's been Increasingly, like drifting right wing, such that you know, Jeremy Corbyn is looked at, you know, as like the second coming of Bebel or whatever, <laughs> you know, and he's really just a pretty, pretty mild, like social democrat by any reasonable metric
0: and not viable, like, and that's like the maddening thing here is that, um, there's that old communizer argument that all this political theory is basically not worth looking at now, like, there's no point as a communist to. Look at Marx's political theories because the the historical you know moment has passed. I was trying with every bit of my being to not say conjuncture because I fucking hate that word. <laughs> um, so the historical moment has passed for you know that kind of strategizing, and uh, we have to do something completely different that nobody knows what it is. How do I put this? I really like the communizers in a lot of ways, but that part rings a little too you know mid nineties for me to. Take on whole cloth. Like, isn't there something in their strategic theory that I'm going to read here? The concept of interclass coalitions or alliances that's central to an adequate understanding of Marx and Engels' concrete analysis of national issues. They refrain from positing any fixed affinity between certain classes and specific forms of nationalism. This was largely because they recognized that the quest for allies, both home and abroad, may oblige a class's members to compromise or even recant some of their initial aims. Scrolling down. Since most national movements observed by Marx and Engels included several class components, no form of nationalism appears in their writing as the complete realization of any single class's interests. Their analyses are theoretically interesting, not because they contain a simple formula reducing national to class phenomena, but because they draw attention to the ways that social conflicts within the national unit shape the content of national ideology. If we're thinking like about big sweeping structural change That isn't just collapse. And I think that's the big asterisk because if it's just collapse, then, you know, whatever. Then, you know, thinking in terms of balkanization and not worrying about this uh, sort of broader mindscape is fine, right? (laughs) Um, If we are thinking about strategic actors and action that can happen, you know, to avert collapse, (laughs) right? It appears to me that A, it's worth a go (laughs) and B, that Marx and Engels like interests in these sort of strategic coalitions have things to say to us. It's not directly applicable, but it's probably more applicable Mm -hmm. than most of the writings during the workers' movement, specifically the stuff that Marx and Engels have to say politically before the workers' movement, like at the time before the first international.
2: Yeah, at the end of the day, Marx and Engels' strategic thinking, although it's not one-to-one directly relevant, it's talking about the situation that our current situation derives from. And based on that alone, if we think they had any useful analysis of the system we live in, what they had to say at that moment that led to ours, got to have something useful to think about. And collapse will look after itself if that is really the only way out.
1: I think this leads us well into chapter four, Ethics in Real Politik and the National Policy, 1847 to 1849. One of the things that Banner starts out the chapter with is talking about the kind of conventional understanding of Marx and Engels, what she terms utopian realism, where everything in terms of their short-term political considerations are bent in this real politic manner to their long-term goals for social transformation. And the way that people kind of impugn this sort of thing, and I think she eventually argues, kind of misunderstands what they were really getting at. But I just wanted to say that there's a kernel of truth to it, though, and it's actually not the worst thing, <laughs> like it's not bad, I would argue, because there's going to be when you're dealing with these immediate political questions, if you're especially if you're in a position that Marx and Engels are at, there's going to be a certain level of agnosticism for a few different reasons. one, there weren't active like direct working class political parties uh, engaged in making immediate political and geostrategic decisions like there would be in the late 19th and early 20th century. A lot of these questions were not live questions. These are very prescriptive. Like what should the working class do here if they were ready to do something like, you know, like this, right? And there two, their ability to influence these things is pretty small in the immediate short term. So there has to be yeah, a certain degree of indeterminacy because you're not making live decisions. So it's not the same kind of question and that's Okay. Secondly, you're not talking about trying to basically create a perfect matrix with which people can use to make political decisions in any circumstance, like some kind of like Machiavellian I Ching or something, is completely insane and not a political project that's feasible. We're talking about dynamic social systems that develop over time. I mean, obviously, yes, you can abstract and take certain components that are at the basis of capitalism, both in its earliest phases. Of the beginnings of English factory production to this weird modern system that we're in now of completely like globally integrated world production, but there are dynamics that shift over time, especially at something as historically contingent as a political level. So you can think about these this kind of political and national and international questions more from a basis that I would say would have like cybernetics, which is you know the science of steerage. The putting their finger up and licking to see which way the wind is blowing they're trying to address shifting and dynamic conditions and there's no perfect way to do that so it's understandable then that you can read different people in determinate conditions answering live questions in the immediate realm of of politics and history could derive different conclusions looking back at the same set of texts and I appreciate where you're coming from but I don't really think that
0: there's so much contradiction in what Marx and Engels are saying. And the trick that the author is doing, maybe the magic trick, you know, maybe it's a sort of defensism of, you know, Marx and Engels is to draw the sort of coherent line between these two imperatives that people kind of feel like are at odds with each other. It's fun because there's two views of marx and angles that are drawn you know in part from their writings that are caricatures that cut in different directions that if you moderate them and you know read how they interact in marx and angles there's a sort of virtue between them there's a sort of aristotelian uh you know golden mean you can actually kind of suss out when reading like the first is this like we are the world kind of like I don't see nation, man, like internationalism that if you read Marx and Engels, you know, they have disdain for this sort of utopianism. But that's the gist that a lot of people get because they have a vision of transcendence of national conflict at all. And having anything like that is, you know, unthinkable to a lot of people. So when they think of Marx and Engels, they think of a very naive Cosmopolitan vision that, of course, Marx and Engels spent like half their lives breathing fire at, if not more. And then the second is probably a little closer to where Marx and Engels actually end up standing in a lot of their writings is that instead of just applying a right to self determination, like, you know, good, decent men like Vladimir Lenin and Woodrow Wilson, you know, assert, instead they have this like weird, seemingly Machiavellian okay how do we get these social interests to like be able to overlap in just such a way so that you know this can happen this sort of pragmatic consequentialism about which people's self-determination movements communists should be supporting which I think for some understandable reasons really rubs people the wrong way trying to read between the lines here and seeing something like a pragmatic consequentialism that also has a, an ethical core that even Marx and Engels would object to. If you, Marx and Engels were alive today and you told them that they had an ethical core to it, they would, like, rail at you. But no, no way, no way, man. I'm, like, edgy as fuck. I would never fuck with ethics. That's gay shit, like, um,
2: yeah. <laughs> Bad to the bone, those two. But, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I think... You're really right. But I think the thing that really makes those two things fit together is that often when you're reading like the works of great theorists like Marx and Engels or Lenin or whoever you choose, you're imagining people making prescriptions standing outside of the moment they're in, like acting as planners almost. Whereas Marx and Engels, although they often were not in the middle of the struggle, as it were, but they were always like trying to think about when they were making recommendations, making suggestions, it was always for people who actually were engaged in these things. I think it makes sense to both have this vision of like understanding nations as a historically determined thing, a thing that didn't exist, a thing that ultimately probably won't exist, and that we should try to overcome in this kind of almost utopian ethical sense, but also like this practical things like how will social interests overlap and like get in there and like make these calculating moves when you understand it's not. People like trying to manipulate this thing from outside, but rather like how can these different social forces that seem in contradiction find something that meets not only their prudential interest, but their, to borrow the terminology that she uses earlier, but their substantive interest. How can they align together? And that like relates to the first criterion very strongly of international reciprocity, where it's like the oppression nation won't really be free like the working class of it won't really be free so long as they are exploiting another nation and that can be brought down to a really crude level and that all the things that are used to maintain that hold over another nation whether it's germany over the poles or if it's america over afghanistan or whatever when things really heat up at home all those skills and abilities and like technologies and tactics they developed there they're going to come home and they're going to be used on the working class so ultimately, you want to deny them that ability to develop that capacity for oppression.
0: In contrast to what Jake was saying about how a lot of these writings are outside of moments where the working class has immediate agency or like ne- these national struggles, you know, didn't have like political parties attached to it. In 1848, Polish nationalism was at the center of what ended up being a, you know, Continental revolutionary wave. In a speech about Polish nationalism, Marx lays out kind of like two theoretical precepts behind what the author calls Marx and Engels' criteria for supporting a national self determination movement. Uh, I'm just going to read these off as is. It's page 142. There is a an analysis of the current source of national conflict with regards to Poland in 1847, and then B, a broad prescriptive claim about how to overcome it. So A, unification and brotherhood of all nations is a phrase which is on the lips of all parties today, and Marx here doesn't necessarily mean formal political parties here, he means broad tendencies, especially those of the bourgeois free traders. A certain kind of brotherhood does, of course, exist among the bourgeois classes of all nations. It is the brotherhood of the oppressors against the oppressed, of the exploiters against the exploited. For the peoples, and uh, it's specified Volcker here, to be able truly to unite, they must have common interests. And in order that their interests may become common, the existing property relations must be done away with. For these property relations involve the exploitation of some nations by others. That's the first sort of theoretical preset. The second being B the victory of the proletariat over the bourgeoisie is at the same time, victory over the national and industrial conflicts, which they range the peoples against one another in hostility and enmity. And so the victory of the proletariat is at the same time, the signal of liberation for all oppressed nations. And here, It's nationen instead of Volker. That distinction was covered in our first part. There's kind of the skeptical tones of political realism, as Benner puts it, from A. And then B has this markedly universalist tack. The prospect of a conflict-free future with regards to national conflicts caused by the victory of the proletariat. And so are these things in contradiction? In order to defend Marx and Engels, the author posits three criteria under which Marx and Engels found it, like, appropriate to support a national
1: self-determination struggle. Yeah, I mean, they don't really seem to be, like, in contradiction.
0: It doesn't to us, especially because we have a sense of, you know, these longer-term interests. It's a, another concept covered in this book is that, you know, whatever is expedient, the interests of a class that could be expedient at one time or another, you know, might in a sort of rational choice payoff way, in the short medium term, might seem to you know butter your bread best to join in with your bourgeoisie and the exploitation of another nation. But in terms of like the long term interest of the working class, that's never really it. You know, that's that seems like common sense to us, but it's not right, especially in the 1990s after the fall of the Soviet Union. The conflation of like highfalutin bong rip reads of Marx with Soviet ideology and all the bullshit they were pushing. This is sort of a revelation. So the first criterion here is international reciprocity. This is a demand on the oppressor nation, or maybe like a people that's sort of like sandwiched in between like a hierarchy of States. But the important part is, is that whatever nationalist movement in a nation that's involved in the oppression of another nation, has to cast off that oppression relation and recognize their common cause with the working class of the oppressed nation. If it's just sort of like, for instance, we want freedom from Britain, taxation is slavery, this is the worst. Also, we want to reap all the benefits of actual slavery from, you know, robbing African peoples from their continent. This is Marx and Engel's point of view, that in the long run, that's guaranteed to work out in favor of the ruling class of this new nation and i I suppose this you know could apply to a nationalist movement in somewhere that isn't casting off the chains of imperialism
1: for the most part that's like the context we want to form our nation and then we'll you begin to compete with the other imperialist powers to get our slice of the pie in africa and southeast asia or wherever yeah i mean these three things are inextricably linked almost like the triad i forget what what sort of um geometric thing that, like, Lacan used to describe the imaginary, symbolic, and the real. But, like, these... <laughs> I thought you were going to the French Revolution, but of course it's Lacan. I could look it up, but I'm not going to. Anyway, it's this particular type of geometry where the three rings are interlinked, like, uh, topographically. So, it, it's like that. These three concepts are so are so tied together that they each kind of, like, lead into the other. Because, yeah, the reciprocity has to be tied to social reform because, again, you're talking about something that's driven by converging the class interests of the proletariat in both places in some meaningful way. Each concept bleeds into the other and they form like a triad.
2: I think about this in the context that the author draws on for examining Marx and Engels' theory of the context of Ireland, In terms of the social viability, Like you had early I- people in the Irish nationalist movement talking about how the need to both throw off England and then immediately throw off capitalism because if you don't, you'll just end up a slave to international capital in the same way you were to England. And you can just look at what happened in Ireland, like its position it's in for international capital now, how it provides a safe haven for it, and, like, it's really fucked up the economy for most people living there. At the same time, part of the reason that became the only viable option for them is because in England, there was no, almost no support for Irish independence. Like, you had some people on the left who supported it, but generally most of the British politics, whether it's from the working class movements itself, to like the Labour Party supported the British attempts at repression in Ireland. And so like there was no room for building up any kind of alternative besides leaning hard into capitalism in the parts of Ireland that got independence. And that's no, just yeah, that, how the two things yeah. link together.
0: It should be relatively uncontroversial that there are demands placed on oppressor nations, right? And like Nationalist movements, especially working class nationalist movements in oppressor nations. Makes a lot of sense to me. Probably the least controversial of these criteria. The second is much more controversial a demand placed on the oppressed nation, and it is for social reform. And essentially, there has to be class content to the nationalist push in the oppressed nation that wants to reform and change and replace the existing hierarchies born by colonialism with something less oppressive so if you simply wanted to let's say do indian nationalism you know before 1945 by reinstating the caste system like mm-hmm. that would be harmful in the sense that independence would be tied to Recreating a very oppressive social order. And Marx and Engels will later on relax this condition in dialogue with the Irish national struggle. But a lot of the edgy things that Marx says about India, which are usually interpreted as Britain, like you gotta pave over that Oriental despotism. Like a lot of the things that people look at Marx sideways for about India are said in context of a
1: stricter form of this criteria. And this criterion, again, they all bleed together, bleeds into viability and history has borne this out because you can't put the water's genie back in the bottle. You have to develop yourself. If only for the purposes of viability, you can't maintain these pre-modern social formations that are based on agriculture, tributary forms of society. You have to introduce some kind of modern political structures that complement modern economic development, if only to maintain your independence or to prevent yourself from colonial subjugation at all. That's the role of V.R. M. Bhikar
0: in Indian nationalism. He, you know, was putting the so-called Dalit question, the untouchable question, forward. In like a way that actually pissed off the existing Communist Party at the time for, quote, dividing the Indian working class, <laughs> like, because he wanted things to be better for the Dalit caste than they were before colonialism and during, you know, British imperialism, like in a new India. And a big reason why it wasn't just like a Hindu national project to reinscribe the caste system, because the leaders like him. Marx was crying about. This kind of stuff at the time. He would like Amdekar's articulation of liberatory longing through a form of like crypto Marxist Buddhism. <laughs> I don't know. The idea of, of an ethical demand on peoples is a real hard sell for anti-imperialist leftists.
2: I mean, it cuts against the basic framework most people operate on, which is which of the canon like imperialist nationism exact thing, okay, everyone else is the good guy now, which is what a lot of anti-imperialism looks to. But ultimately, do you want anti-imperialism to win? Do you want people to no longer be oppressed? Then they need to have an actual programme that builds liberation in their situation. It can't just be throwing something off You need to build something in its place.
1: It's understandable how that can just happen rhetorically amidst the discourse of living In the imperialist country that's doing the oppression because you know there's so much shit being flooded in to create this atmosphere that what's happening is okay or that we're in the right or we're just defending ourselves somehow so it's very easy to reflexively go the other direction and just defend whatever the other people are doing because they're being otherized right like you see this right now with the china bad stuff you see this with like liberals standing up Going like, yes, Mr. Trump needs to do something about TikTok, even though they should fully understand (laughs) that it has nothing to do with Chinese ownership. He's pissed because some teenagers trolled his rallies, you know, like the second Chinese like 5G and their Internet infrastructure like supersedes ours. We're going to have a firewall up to keep out the rest of the world, whether it's from Russian or Chinese interference or whatever. And it's going to be hailed by Democrats and Republicans as a victory for free speech.
0: With regards to China, there is a lot of useful idiot shit, but, and there's definitely Chinese dark money going into some of these like efforts. I don't mean to sound like a you know like a lib, you know, with my crank conspiracy theories about foreign intervention into our precious American discourse. But I mean, if you're a nation state and you're not like trying to buy off opposition and flood their brains on social media,
2: then you just not very good at this whole nation yeah. state business, are you? Yeah, right. no,
0: not not at all. So like. The idea that there is defensist ideology floating out there for Daddy Xi, that a lot of Marxists are eating this up. Even anti-revisionists, some of them, who are supposed to be standing like Mao, have come around to Xi's project of socialism in the 21st century <laughs> in a way that isn't reflective of this like reform criterion.
1: Right. But it's very difficult. In the contemporary environment, and in past environments too, I think that's like the long form appeal of a lot of this stuff: to resist the siren song of counter-signaling, right? To resist yes. that call, to even go beyond, because so much of the like the China bad stuff is people complaining about stuff that we one hundred percent do, maybe more so, you know, or, we, yeah. or yeah. we maybe, or sometimes not to the same extent, but we certainly do it in a, like a slightly different way. There's this tone taken, like, did you know that China? Is spying on American citizens? Like, can you believe this? <laughs> What's the
2: NSA? I don't know her. What? Yeah. <laughs>
1: but yeah. It's yeah the, like- the exact same people that poo pooed Edward Snowden are like, we got to get rid of TikTok, dude. This is, this is fucked up.
2: <laughs> but at the end of the day, like, you do need to be able to have different kinds of conversations with different people. Like, when you're dealing with someone whose brains melted talking about this, I don't think it's so necessary to talk about the necessity of reform on the part of the Chinese people as it is when you're talking to another leftist or someone who's actively engaged in some kind of organizing around it. There is a degree that these criterions, they're definitely the right ones to steer what kind of activity you're engaging in and how you think about and understand this, but you don't need to get into the weeds of every argument with every different person.
0: Yeah, these two criteria are sort of about like, what is worth supporting even in the abstract? Although both of these things need to be said to people. Actually, China stands need to obey the first criteria too, because Of what China is doing in Africa, but, you know, whatever. Now, criterion three is a little different. This is a more practical criterion, which (laughs) at one point in Engels's, you know, scrawlings on pan-Slavic nationalism in 1848, (laughs) this is where he adopts uh, Hegel's category of historyless peoples to the Slavs. And kind of throws in their national aspirations, you know, despite being for Polish national aspirations on like kind of similar grounds. He throws in all of the pan Slavic like national aspirations into the dustbin of history as peoples that will be eliminated. But more importantly, he condemns us all as reactionary because it's impossible. Instead of having a sense of maybe tragedy about it, right? He does a conflation which. The author seems to think that Marx kind of avoids but maybe cosigns by not pushing
1: angles on it or something. Anyway,
0: the point of the viability criterion is, can this pragmatically happen?
1: Is this like project of nation building or separation or whatever, is that feasible? Is that going to be stable or will it be possible to set that up? And that yeah, that is a very important question because you don't want to see a bunch of people ideally just march off on some sort of doom thing or something that's 100% bound to turn reactionary when it runs up against you know the forces of necessity it's definitely a harder thing to suss out but it's very important to ask when you look at the horizons of any struggle this is why I was so lukewarm on the Hong Kong stuff the kind of crypto separatist rhetoric that you saw in a lot of what they were saying it was just not viable you know it's a the entire country such as it is is basically a, it's a port and it's a trading center and the rest is service economy next to China. They're a hundred percent dependent on China one way or another. So, you know, yeah, viability always has uh, some kind of implications, but it is often the hardest to suss out precisely because And we we're saying this a little earlier off. Mike, Nick was pointing out how just because something isn't viable now, doesn't mean like some turn of conditions couldn't come later. That changes that.
2: Yeah. And I think it is true to th- that. You really need to think hard about what is actually possible in this moment. But also, I think as communists, if we limited ourselves to what is immediately viable in the short term, we wouldn't do very much at all. We would probably not be communists. So I think you do need to take perspective of what is the long term viability of any given project, not necessarily in building a separate nation state, but what possibilities, even if this thing fails, will it open up for the future? What bonds of solidarity will it forge in a nation that previously didn't exist? What kind of institutions will it build within the working class that can fight different other battles? What potential links will it reaching out and trying to form alliances form with working class and other nations? It's like, Rojava is in a pretty shit state right now, like caught between Syria and Turkey with America backing off. But it's important to remember that Rojava wasn't just a weird thing that happened during the Syrian civil war. It was the result of organizing by different political groups, both Kurdish and non-Kurdish for like a long-ass time. And this is just a different stage in an ongoing struggle. And even though the particular institutions that were built, like in the open in this situation, will, may fail or be crushed, it has changed the situation again. It's built links of solidarity between other ethnic groups that previously weren't there to the same extent it's the people's understanding of what is possible and like how they can practically do it when there's other moments and so what's viable in the short term what's viable in the long term are not always the same thing and it's important not to lose sight of the long-term viability of something by looking only at the short term and this kind of fits into the schema of Prudential and substantial interests. Like the substantial interest that it's advancing in the long term may be different to the prudential interest it's trying to follow right now. And that substantial interest might be advanced even if a national independence movement is crushed.
0: The thing that has always made the Kurdish national question in our time so, such a cynical conversation, especially during the initial Gulf War, is the way that the US puppeted the Kurds with a tantalizing promise that their nationalism would be supported and like you know funneling support to them when they were tactically useful only to pull out and let Saddam do ethnic cleansing on them to literally gas them there is a sense of tragedy to the reality that you know without essentially US imperialism projecting its influence on Turkey Syria Iraq there can be no Kurdish national state the best that they could probably do is something like a, a Chiapas-Zapatista situation, uh, and you know, in which case, like, kind of more power to them. Arguably, like, those elements of the Kurdish movement, you know, satisfy the second criterion. When you're dealing with things that, you know, satisfy the first criteria and, and kind of don't satisfy the third, you have to have a sense of tragedy, or at least more of a sense of tragedy than Engels does when shitting on the Slavs. The other thing that comes to mind here for me is Palestine, you know, throughout throughout my life, like I've found, you know, Palestine solidarity activism and, you know, kind of anti Zionist expansion, like activism, you know, very attractive and kind of gave me a sense in which I can like be Jewish in a not terrible way, you know, because most of the expressions of Judaism that I had been exposed to were, were Zionist forms and you know expansionist forms so i had sort of associated the two growing up and um the weirdness about the sort of long term arc of these kind of activist projects is how difficult and unrealistic it is to see an end to this struggle right now and that doesn't take anything away from how important it would be to support whatever kinds of solidarity efforts there are there for an international working class project Like, that's not to diminish it at all. It's just like, you know, a dose of real politique to go with your, you know, universalist ethics is important. This is the fruit
1: of Marx and Engels' writings on nationalism. It makes a good case against framing, you know, like self determination in the abstract terms of rights and how the right to self determination, yeah, absent any other criteria, is completely meaningless. You know, you can just end up with like insane like microfragments and balkanization or you can end up just like supporting any kind of reactionary stuff. Like they're, yeah, like national liberation is can be supported in certain instances if there is like some kind of meaningful framework with which to do that. But more just broadly, there's always, it's basically the question of, you know, is this national project going to contribute to conditions that will advance working class struggle generally? And to do that, you have to have some kind of Positive idea of where things ought to head, or where you want them to head, or what kind of political project you want to undertake. So much thinking about nationalism is very uh, reactive. Maybe not, if not reactionary. It's understandable that there tends to be this allergy that wants to basically just throw out any national liberation project as intrinsically reactionary because you're going to create some kind of cross class alliance. That will integrate people into the state and you know crush any like long term working class organization, but that's too hard of a rubric. But you end up in this kind of paralysis where you're in this state where it's like everything and everyone sucks but me <laughs> and you know <laughs> my my crew of uh, shit posters. That's it for
0: this chat. Thanks to Nick for coming on this episode and next episode. It took us two recording sessions to get through this book, although this episode was composed of both of those sessions. Next episode will only be from the second one. For ways to support us at Swampside Chats that cost $0 a month, Like our pages on social media, share episodes with the Russian bots in your life, or leave a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice. Note that we are back on Apple Podcasts. Thanks, Jake. For ways to support us that cost more than zero dollars a month, go to patreon.com slash swampsidechats and get goodies like custom episodes or a seat in our monthly reading group. Go to Swampside.chat for more. Swampside Chats is part of Emancipation Network. Check out our sister podcasts, From Alpha to Omega, General Intellect Unit, Jumpsuit Utopia, and Mortal Science. Visit Emancipation.network for more. Next up, Part 2 of Really Existing Nationalisms with Nick. Keep your boots clean.